0: The brother kindly gave us an exhortation to confess sexual issues or sexual orientation that might be a problem for us. I was having lunch with, or dinner with, or snack with Lynn, and we were talking and he was sharing a bit about his family, Now this is a true story, and he said, Bill, you have to understand that I am the matriarch of our family. Do you realize what he just said? I took this to be a disguised confession. So we want, we definitely want to embrace this brother, and not when he comes up. We want to say if he if he dares come up, whatever I'm saying and whatever I'm doing, we will stop, and we will say hail the matriarch to show him that we love him without judgment, all right? (laughs) Now let's just practice one time together. Hail the matriarch. Good, good. So this guy is walking on the beach and he sees this glimmer in the sand and he reaches down, pulls it up out of the sand and it's a bottle and he polishes it and out pops this genie. But it's a different genie. This is a genie with an attitude. And soon as he comes out of the Bible, he says, Now, wait a minute, wait a minute. Let's get something straight right now. I didn't want to come out. I don't like to be asked questions. And I'm a one-wish genie. I'm not a three-wish genie. And it won't do you any good to ask for three wishes. You got one, that's it. Now, what do you want? I'm tired. And the guy is just kind of blown back by this. And he... He says, well, you know, I've never been to Hawaii, but I'm afraid to fly, and I'm afraid of boats. He so said, I want you to build a bridge from San Diego to Hawaii. And the genie looks at him, he says, you must be nuts. Do you know the distance from here to Hawaii? Do you know how deep it is? How many mountains there are under the ocean? Do you know the logistics? I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it. Make another wish. (laughs) Guy scratches his head. He says, you know, I've been married and divorced three times. I've never understood any of my wives, and they say I never understood them. I don't know when they're crying, are they happy or are they sad? And when they say nothing's wrong, does that mean nothing's wrong or something's really wrong? So I, He said, you know what? I want you to make me understand women. <sighs> Jeannie looked at him. You want that bridge two lanes? <laughs> <laughs> I had the uh, good pleasure of being with some of the brothers in New Orleans last December. It's the first time I've ever been to New Orleans. The food is every bit as good as they've ever said. And I met a Cajun brother there who told me, some jokes, and I find out that culturally the Cajuns have an incredible sense of humor. And they've got these fictional characters called Thibodeau and Boudreaux. So Thibodeau wins this all-expense-paid trip to go to Paris, France. But he doesn't want to go. He's scared. He's not going to there. But his friends say, you know, how can you pass up an opportunity like this? And they press and press, and finally he says, okay, I'll go. He gets on the airplane. But they close the door, and when they close the door, he panics. Up, he's rushing for the door. The flight attendant's him. They said, Thibodeau, what's wrong? He says, I don't want to go. I am scared. I don't speak the language. I don't know the culture. They said, Thibodeau, you're Cajun. French is your root language. You already know more French than anybody on this airplane. So he starts to calm down a little bit. And they said, look, we'll tell you what. It's eight hours from here to Paris. We have an audio cassette of French being spoken. You can just take the headphones, plug it in, and for the eight-hour flight, you can listen to this tape. So you'll, by the time you get there, you will know the, the pronunciation, the, the idioms, the inflections. You'll feel totally comfortable. Okay, so he takes the tape, plugs it in, eight hours lands in Paris, gets off the plane, and one of the gendarmes comes up to him and says, Bonjour, monsieur. Comment ça va? And he looks at him and he says, Oh, my goodness. All right, stop being silly, guys. Come on. We're... <laughs> you know, I do, I do want a chance to uh, thank, you know, just God just laid this on me, my heart, seriously. A uh, couple of little things. I, Bob Cook. I just appreciate Bob Cook. He never says much. He's always quiet. But he just seems to have the sweetest servant's heart. And it's a gentle rebuke to me, a loving rebuke, that there are people like him in the body of Christ. I thank you. Uh, Tom Callahan, Chuck onby they do all this stuff, you know, and they're never in front, and they always just, Bill, you all right? You need water? You get... And you can always get speakers, but you can't get somebody to do the nitty gritty stuff. And I just want to say I really appreciate you. I really thank you for the the labor that you bring to the body. I uh, just thank you. And then lastly, I hope that we never take Walt for granted. Now, I don't want to be sentimental. Everybody? Hail the matriarch! <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness! <laughs> but, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, gentlemen, we have we have such a treasure in Walt. And the reason I say that, and, I'm, uh, and again, I'm not trying to be sentimental about this, is we don't know how long God will give us to him, give him to us. For somebody to come and teach us the word of God in such a pure way, year after, you can always know that you're going to get the word of God. You won't know whether you'll like it. <laughs> <laughs> but you always know you're going to get the word of God pure and unadulterated. That is such a treasure, and we can take it for granted. I'm not saying you do, but we never want to take for granted somebody who brings us the word of God that way and confronts us with it so that God can deal with us about it. So I just want to say, Walt, I love you. I thank you. You're an inspiration. Well, uh, today's talk, I don't remember the title of it. Traps in the Marketplace. It's an overview of the book of Ecclesiastes. What I hope to do by this overview is to spark your interest to read the book and to just meditate on some of the rich truths in this book. I got interested in it because of my wife, who, as we talk right now, is on a flight From Los Angeles to Miami where she'll catch a 5 o'clock flight from there to go to Cape Town, South Africa. And I can't tell you how it feels to know that my sweetheart is in the air and yet I feel so connected to her. I miss her terribly already, but I'm excited about what God will be doing in her life there. But we were sitting at home one evening and she said, you know what my favorite book is? And I said, no. And she said, Ecclesiastes. And my response was, Ecclesiastes? I could understand you saying that about Romans or Genesis, but Ecclesiastes, and I'm I'm embarrassed to tell you that the way I said it offended her. And uh, because I didn't say it like, oh, Ecclesiastes? (laughs) I wish in retrospect I had said it that way. Uh, And I immediately backpedaled, and her knife against my throat was a motivation. <laughs> but I, I said, well, why, uh, why are you so interested in it? And she said, well, let's read this, and read this. And, and I began to study it, and I thought, what an incredible book it is for any guy who's working in the marketplace. What truths. It is such a God-centered, hope-centered, eternity-centered book. And the beauty of the book is you have seen a guy well let me back up. Suppose you see a guy approach a light socket. Now you don't know anything about electricity. You just drop down on the planet. And you see this guy wet his finger and go over to that socket and jam it up there and then start to shake like that. And he falls out and he is in obvious distress. The one thing that a non-rocket scientist like me would conclude is not to put my finger in that socket. Now, somebody might be tempted to say, well, don't lick your finger and put your finger in the socket. Just go ahead and put your finger in the socket. But I want to say that I'm an, I have enough sense that I might, I might look at that guy lying on the floor, still kicking, and say, I'm gonna not do that under any circumstances. And that's part of the beauty of this book for Ecclesiastes. It's a modern book for the working man where you can say, been there, done that, except somebody else has borne the pain of learning the lessons that if we have the sense, we can follow them without having to duplicate the mistakes. And so the focus of the book is that nothing is more important in this life than considering how your actions weigh in eternity. <laughs> Rejoice, O young man. This is from Ecclesiastes 11:9, 1 through 10. Rejoice, O young man, in thy youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth, and walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these things God will bring you into judgment. Therefore, remove sorrow from thy heart, and put away evil from thy flesh, for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. And the first time I read that, I thought it was such a downer. It was like giving somebody a slice of their favorite cake, and then you take a fork, and you get ready to take a bite, and they yank it away. He says, rejoice, and do whatever you want. Yeah, 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 yeah. But wait, I just want you to know that I'm going to hold you in judgment for everything. Whoa. It seems contradictory. But the more I meditated on it, the more I saw the richness and the grace of this admonition. You might, because we're in ski country, uh, that's dimming. I did that specifically. And I apologize. I didn't think about the lights, but I always have one point dim, so you focus on the point that I'm talking about. But... When you go down these ski trails, they are marked. And you have the black diamonds, and you have the blue runs, and you have the green runs. And you have the roped off areas, and typically they have that yellow tape hanging from them. So the young hot dogs won't say, oh, there's a good unmarked trail. And you go down that. And they say to you, ski any place you want to on the mountain. All the lifts are open. All the runs have been beautifully groomed and we've left some off over here though with deep powder so you, the mountain is yours have a great time now I gotta except for the areas where you could fall off and kill yourself stay away from that who would say well heck I don't want to get lift ticket I'm not going to go skiing there I want to break my head I want to ski off the mountain It, it would be illogical And so here's the beauty of this book that a loving God literally does say to these young men, whatever age that may be, I want you guys to go out there and have a ball. I want you, whatever is on your heart to do without sin, whatever is on your heart to do, go out there and go for it. That Christians ought to be the most adventurous people on the planet. They ought to be the greatest explorers, the greatest researchers, because God says, just go for it. I'm right behind you going, go, Kerry, go, Kerry, go, Bob, go. Now, just remember, just remember, I'm going to hold you in judgment for what you do, so use wisdom. But otherwise, man, just go for it. This is the end of the matter, he says at the end of the book. All has been said, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every work into judgment with every hidden thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil." Now, one of the things that intrigued me about the book of Ecclesiastes is that it is the most quoted book by nonbelievers. You didn't know that, did you? But in the research, I found out it is the book that's most frequently quoted by unbelievers. Uh, the, the section that was made into a song by the birds. For every season there's a turn, turn, turn. But, and I am amazed that no book is more forthright about the eternal consequences of our actions and the fact that God will judge us for what we do than the book of Ecclesiastes. And yet the unbeliever can go to this book, read it, quote it, and not tremble. I find that utterly amazing. The temporal is critically important because it determines where and how we spend eternity. Yet we attach too much and the wrong kind of importance to the temporal because we wrongly look to the temporal rather than to Jesus for meaning, purpose, significance, and reward, all of which are found only in Jesus himself, not in church, not in CBMC. Jesus. Jesus is our reward. He is our purpose. He is our significance. He is our meaning. So here are some key words. Vanity. In the, it's used in the King James. I think it's also used in the NIV. <clears throat> it's used 33 times in this book. And vanities, the plural, is appears four times in three verses. And yet, when you commonly think of vanity, it is often translated and often taught to mean meaningless. All is vanity, as though it was saying, all is meaningless. And I submit to you that that is not what it means. That the actual word in the Hebrew is eber, and it means a vapor, a breath. That's the word. Here today, gone tomorrow. Your wealth in the eternal picture. Uh, The buildings that you and I are going to build tomorrow, that project, that commercial project that we're going to lease out is going to make us a lot of money. The records that we're going to cut, the money we're going to earn, the institutions that are going to bear our name, all our efforts. It's a vapor. When we were out yesterday and we went for a walk in that nice, crisp cold, and I love to see the breath coming from my mouth that always marvels me, and it's there, and then it's gone. And see, that is not meaningless. How could it be meaningless? Just reason with me. when how we spend our temporal lives determines where we spend eternity and the quality of our eternity. That being the case then our temporal life clearly cannot be meaningless. meaningless. Because if it were indeed meaningless, then there will be no eternal consequences that we would have to worry about. You with me? We could go through life without worrying about the consequences of how we live. Why? Because it's all meaningless anyway. No. Gentlemen, it is cut-throat meaningful. You will never have another chance to know God in terms of where you spend eternity, then in this life, once we die, as a believer we will always continue to know God and God will always reveal himself through us throughout eternity. But where but the chance to, to, to get into that game, to know God, is here. We decided Here. And for the people who wind up in hell, there is not another opportunity to know God in the sense of being freed from hell. You understand? Another key word, I, used 87 times in this book, I saw, I contemplated, I mused, I built, I spoke, I learned, I pondered, I I, I. This is a guy who, for our purposes, I believe is a great teaching tool, has made his life an experiment in what not to do. And he at least has been honest enough not to attribute his mistakes and his experimentation to somebody else. He doesn't say, my neighbor pondered the guy down the street built. He said, I did these things. It's introspection, it's reflection at the end of life. Another key word, vexation and vexatious. That word appears 14 times in the Bible. And of those 14 times, 10 are in Ecclesiastes. And The meaning for it is just what it says, vexation. You dumbfounded, confounded, amazed to the point that you are speechless or you're just torn up about the way something is. You are vexed. So here is this guy full of introspection, a life of experimentation in the challenges of living for eternal consequences and over and over again he's saying I was vexed when I saw, I was vexed when I did, I was vexed when I considered such and such I have seen all the works that I've done under the sun and behold all is and a vexation of spirit in other words when he looks at the things in the temporal they did not bring him a state of settling peace but they roiled his gut then I looked on all the works that my hands had wrought and on the labor that I had labored to do and behold all was in vexation of spirit and there was no profit under the sun evil 22 22 times it appears in this book uh, and sometimes in connection with vexatious and it means evil it means trouble it means affliction it means adversity it's not just a it, it doesn't just have the sense of a moral evil but the kinds of things gentlemen that just don't fit when you see this guy who's a liar and a cheat and he's making hand over fist whatever that phrase is and here you are walking with God loving with God and the deal that you're trying to put together goes south this sucker flaunts the name of God every day whores around the office touches a deal and makes $100,000 in a sneeze it's vexation to my spirit It is evil. I can't make this connect in a way that brings me any peace at all. The book is preeminently concerned about our actions and our circumstances. So the man in the marketplace. Let's learn a little bit about this guy. He was a political leader and figurehead. Says in in all these references, if you don't see a a book, it's because it's from Ecclesiastes. So here's chapter 1, verse 12. Said, I, the preacher was the king over Israel in Jerusalem. He was Bill Clinton of his day. He was whoever he was. He was the king. He was a developer. He said, I made me great works. I built houses. And you can imagine that we're not talking about the houses that Jimmy Carter erected with his very worthwhile organization. We're talking beautiful houses on the hillside the advertisement in the in the paper would say mountain view gated community exclusive great houses he was a commercial farmer he said i planted me vineyards he was a scholar and a scientist he says i gave my heart to seek and search out by wisdom concerning all things that are done under heaven. He was a cerebral mystic. I mean, this is the kind of guy, if he walked into the room, all of us would say, man, this guy is deep. And he's, everything he touches turns to gold. He can quote the best books. And if, if you say, man, I really like that boulevard, the way it's laid out, he would say, well, you know, I built that. That was a project, and if you could get a little plaque there. He says, I communed with mine own heart, saying, Lo, I am come to great estate, and have gotten more wisdom than all they that have been before me in Jerusalem. He dove headfirst into hedonism. He was the classic good time Charlie. But you couldn't write him off as a shallow and superficial guy because if you did, he would point to the projects that he had built. The streets that were named after him. The vineyards that were the best in the area. And he could quote to you everything on the New York Times bestseller list, including some erudite books that you'd never heard of. He said, I said in my heart, go to now, I will prove thee with mirth, test thee, and enjoy pleasure. And behold, this also is I sought in my heart to give myself unto wine and to lay hold on folly. Man, I am going to have a great time. This is a guy everybody wanted to join his fraternity. They had the best and the wildest parties. They had the best wine, best beer, all the finest honeys from campus. I come into that fraternity to be a part of that action. He masterminded great civic projects. I mean, the moment you want to write this guy off as being a worthless hedonist, he says, you know, remember that area where people starved because they didn't have water? He says, you know what? I made me pools of water to water there with the wood that bringeth forth trees. I'm the one who built the dam that made this whole area possible. He became the most ardent materialist and unashamed flagrant, conspicuous consumer. He says, I got servants and maidens and I had servants born in my house. Also, I had great possessions of great and small cattle above all that were in Jerusalem before me. I gathered silver and gold and the peculiar treasures of kings and of the provinces. Maybe you hear about that guy who, who will pay 30 million dollars for one of those Russian eggs. It was a peculiar treasure. I mean, you gotta have so much money that people would look at that and say, that's stupid. (laughs) That's stupid. But you got money left over. It didn't make a dent in your pocketbook. And you can laugh and say, yeah, you know what? I bought it on a whim. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I got men singers and women singers and the delights of the sons of men as musical instruments and that of all sorts. So I was great and increased more than all that were before me in Jerusalem. And whatsoever my eyes desired, I kept not from myself. I withheld not my heart from any joy. Think of that. Name the woman. You want Michael Jackson to do a private conference? Uh, concert at your house? Done. You want Madonna Madonna to be his backup? Done. And yet here he was in each and every one of these endeavors as successful as Michael Jordan was in basketball and yet he said, I looked on all the works that my hands had wrought and on all my labor and all was in a vexation of spirit. It says, I hated life. Now doesn't that come as a shock? This is a guy who got all the women hanging on his arm, walking down the boulevard that he built and that bears his name, going to a concert in honor of him as Time's Man of the Year, He's got a book on the New York Times bestseller list, and they've already bought the movie rights. They got a dam up there that they call Tom Callahan Dam. Things are rocking and rolling. You are the envy of everybody around. And you get up and you look in the mirror and you say, I hate my life. All of this vexes me. And, gentlemen, Aren't some of us there? Don't we want to be the one after whom they name the street? Don't we have that great civic project in mind? Don't we want people to respect us for our intellect? Don't we want to be the one that said, man, if you want to have a good time, man, you just gotta hang with McCurin. That guy knows how to have a good time. Cannot there be something about this guy that you identify with and say, just quietly, I wish I had that. but then in the privacy of the moment he would sit down with you and I, and he'd say look I just have to tell you I hate my life what drove him to despair one nothing would be new he says for what can the man do that cometh after the king even what has already been done he said when I wake up in the morning there are no joy there is no joyful expectation it's all been done even when I try I know that I'm just doing something else second thing that just drove him to despair everyone faces the same end he said the wise man's eyes are in his head but the fool walketh in darkness and I myself perceived that also one event happeneth to them all then I said in my heart "As it happens to the fool So it happens even to me. I'm going to die. You know, there's not a project I build that will add a day to my life. This is the end of side one. Please. There's not a... Every bank account I have has not added one hour to my life. I've got no more hope for eternity than the utter fool, the jackass lying in the gutter. I can't believe that my grave will be next to his. This just frustrates me. You would think that as great as I am, I'd get at least one more day over that guy. Third, he could not determine the ultimate disposition of all his hard and creative work. He says, I hated all my labor which I had taken under the sun because I should leave it unto the men that follow after me. And who knows whether he's going to be a jackass or not. Gentlemen, I could build the greatest boulevard. Somebody is telling me I was up in um, Fort Collins with Jim Ringenberg the other day. And he was telling me, he said, you know what, Boulder, downtown Boulder, used to be a, an, sort of this incredibly beautiful, idyllic area. And that some of it is going to seed. He said, Boulder. How many great buildings have been built only to fall into the hands of warring little factions after the great guy or the great woman leaves, and because they can't resolve the conflict the way they resolve it is, you can't have it, I can't have it, we'll let the thing fall into disrepair. He said, I saw hypocrisy and a lack of integrity all around me. I saw under the sun the place of judgment, that wickedness was there, and the place of righteousness, that iniquity was there. So he walks into, the, into his office one day and finds out that his partner's been embezzling money. Or we're not really telling the client what they need to hear because we want to close the deal. We're telling them what they want to hear. And then when he goes to church to talk about it with his pastor, he inadvertently open, comes in the door without knocking, and there's the pastor having sex with the choir leader. Or the pastor can't get along with the sub-pastor. Or the head of the deacon board is in a furious huff over the choir director because he parked his car in his spot. As I see this all running, and it, it, I'm, I'm vexed in my spirit about it. He saw that neither the oppressor nor the oppressed had any peace that power and powerlessness shared the same dilemma i considered all the oppression that are, that is done under, all the oppressions that are done under the sun and behold the tears of such as were oppressed and they had no comforter and on the side of their oppressors there was power but they had no comforter the slave is angry at the slaveholder and the slaveholder is worried that the slaves will revolt So so what's the use? Whether you're a slave or slaveholder, there's no comfort and no peace. It's a book filled with questions. Over 10 searching questions about the meaning of life. For example, what does it gain a man to work? I mean, seriously. Why are you working? And I turn to myself to behold wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do that cometh after the king? Who can follow this up? I have laid a foundation, but to what end? For what man for what hath man of all his labor and of the vexation of his heart wherein he hath labored under the sun I have done all of the. I've poured my heart into it I've built it the best I know how but having built it I stand back and I look at it and I ask so what and I am reminded of President Lyndon Johnson desperately wanted to be president by election desperately wanted it becomes president because John F. Kennedy is assassinated. Then he wins the next election, and he dies a bitter man, hurt and vexed in his spirit because he set out to build the, the great what? Society. And he looked back at what he had done and how he had spent his life, and he was vexed. So here are some principles that I draw out of this book. I'm not saying that you will draw them out. My goal is not to tell you what it says. My goal is to tell you how it impacted me with the hope that you would be encouraged to dig into this book yourself. I am reminded of a Christian teacher who said, one of the beauties of the Bible is that it is shallow enough that it will not drown the youngest babe, but deep enough that the greatest theologian will never search out all its depths. And so whether you are a babe or a deep scholar, I just hope that you will wade in or you will dive in and let the Spirit of God bring to you lessons for your life. But let me share with you some of the things I have gotten out of the book. You're not going to be able to write these down, but Tom Callahan has all the notes, and you can get those from him. But principle number one is the the Christian paradox. The temporal is but a vapor. Here today, gone tomorrow. And yet, it is critically important because it determines where we spend eternity and the quality of our eternity. Number two, God has made us dissatisfied with the temporal. At least for the elect, there is a God-created hole in each soul that only God himself can fill. And, you know, we can try to fill it with other things, with drugs, with sex, with good projects, with good deeds. Gentlemen. I am less concerned about committing adultery. I'm, I'm saying unconcerned. I am less concerned about committing adultery than I am about losing sight of Jesus. Because I'm going to all the deacon meetings. I'm coming to Lost Valley. I'm doing all these things but I have lost Jesus in the life. That's my big fear. He has set eternity in their hearts. And because he's put it there, man will never be satisfied with the temporal. They phrase it differently. They say, there's got to be more to life than this. Or Uh, is this all there is or what else have you ever heard anybody say that have you ever pondered it yourself Uh, I can remember and here's a moment of shame having a, a fornicating experience in college and this was what I know this was hip Jack the woman was fine I could brag to my buddies about the night before And woke up in the morning. Not knowing God. And having no desire to know him. But sitting there saying. Is this all there is. I felt so empty. Where I thought. I would feel elated. And satisfied. I felt emptied and dirty. And I couldn't understand it. But gentlemen. God. Has put eternity in the hearts. At least for his elect. So that wallowing and seeking after the temporal rather than the eternal will never satisfy. You understand? We're wired that way. It doesn't matter that you pursue them. You will never, ever find satisfaction in them. God has so created us that we will yearn for more than the temporal can ever provide. And, And there is nothing we can do about that. 1 Thessalonians 5.18, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Principle number three. Yet, even though what I just said is true, God gives us things on earth to take pleasure in. Live joyfully with the wife of your youth whom you love all the days of your life of your of the days of your short life which he has given you under the sun all the days of your for that is your portion in this life. Proverbs 18.22 Whoso findeth a wife findeth a good thing and obtains favor Of the Lord. Let me share another verse with you that I shared with one of our dear brothers yesterday from Proverbs 5. It says, Rejoice in the wife of your youth. Treat her as a loving deer, as a gentle doe. Let her breasts satisfy you at all times and always be ravished by her love our wives constitute one of the kindnesses of God to us and I hope you're not like me I hope you aren't the kind of guy like I too often am I don't appreciate her nearly enough don't listen to her nearly in love. Don't recognize that God will often speak to me through my wife. Here I am praying, God, talk to me, talk to me, talk to me, talk to me. And then my wife says something on the issue I'm praying about and I say, quiet. I'm waiting for God to speak. I know you guys don't do that. But I have to tell you sinfully that I do that. Do you get critical of her? Is she gaining weight on you? Are her breasts once firm beginning to droop? Are there wrinkles on her skin? She can't get around and do some of the things that she used to do with you because her body's not up to it the way it used to be. And wouldn't it be better? Wouldn't your ministry be more energized with a younger woman? Let me ask you do you enjoy your wife and if if we had a chance to talk to her quietly without you listening in and without fear of reprisal from you and we asked her dana does bill enjoy you what would your wife say It is good and comely for one to eat and to drink and to enjoy the good of all his labor that he taketh under the sun all the days of his life. For this is one of, one of the gifts of God. I mean, to have fellowship, to have a good meal, to have some friends say, hey, let's come over and have a barbecue. Let's just sit down and talk. That's one of God's sweet pleasures. When is the last time You invited a friend over just to sit around the table and talk without worrying whether you'd be able to close a business deal with him. Just to enjoy his company. Because this is one of God's gifts in the temporal. Principle number four. Not only does God give us the simple things in life to enjoy, like our wives, work, food, and companions, He alone gives and withholds the ability to enjoy these things. For he satisfieth the longing soul and fills the hungry soul with goodness. I remember being in college and I was was hip. You understand, I was hip. And I had to get myself some marijuana because we were having um, um, homecoming weekend. Had invited a young fox up from Smith. Was cooking uh, pork chops that I'd stuffed with almonds and pineapples. And I had some marijuana that I was potent stuffed. You know why? Because it was going to help me enjoy I thought this experience more. But it's not the drink or the drug or the sex that enables you to enjoy anything. It is God who enables us to enjoy. It says Abraham breathed his last and died in a ripe old age and satisfied with life. Now compare that With this man who had everything and looked in the mirror and said, I hate my life. Gentlemen, at the end of it, at the end of it, do you want to look back and say, I have hated this? Or do you want to look back with a smile on your face right before the angel of death comes and you say, oh, I'm satisfied? Thank you, God. Ready to go. (sighs) There is an evil, says the writer, which I have seen under the sun, and it is prevalent among men. A man to whom God has given riches and wealth and honor so that he lacks nothing. But God has not empowered him to eat from them, and a stranger enjoys them. Is, are you so caught up in your life right now that there's actually a neighbor who is enjoying your children more than you do? He that loveth silver shall not be satisfied with silver, nor he that loveth abundance with increase. And yet, isn't it interesting? It doesn't say that God will stop the abundance or stop the increase. It's just that you can have them, but you won't enjoy them. I remember reading about eight years ago a man in Germany. He was the wealthiest man in Germany at the time, earned more apartments than anybody else in the world. He owned over 25,000 apartments around the world. His servant came into him one day, and found him dangling at the end of a rope God gave them their request but sent leanness into their soul now here I fear this do you want God to give you more because you aren't satisfied with what you want You tell your wife, you know, our relationship, our sexual relationship could be better if you lost 10 pounds. You know, I if I could just build that wing on my house. If I could just close this one deal. If I could just get in that club, if my golf, if I could get three strokes off my golf game, man, would I be happy. God God make it happen. God make it happen. God make it happen. God make it happen. Oh, let me switch. God, I demand that you make it happen. God says, "Okay." Your golf stroke is now ten points under. It's just that you won't enjoy it anymore. Your wife, she didn't lose ten pounds. She's lost thirty. You don't enjoy it anymore. And that deal, it closed. But you'll wake up in the morning and you'll just say, "You know, what's the purpose?" See, gentlemen, God enables us to enjoy whatever it is in his sovereign will he has chosen to give us. I'm not saying don't ask for more. I'm saying be careful that you enjoy and are thankful for what God has given. Because one of the signs of the unregenerate heart in Romans is what? The ungrateful person next for the rich man will not often consider the years of his life because God keeps him occupied with the gladness of his heart do you realize what he's saying here this guy is rocking fat and happy money is rolling in projects are being completed but this is a curse not a blessing It is given in punishment and rebuke, not in chastisement and love. Why? So that person will be so caught up and preoccupied with life that he will never stop and ask, where do I stand with God? Gentlemen, when a man tells me that money is pouring out of heaven, I have to tell you my initial reaction is, and I'm not saying this is right, but my initial reaction is, Lord, has he done anything wrong? are you punishing him are you, are you blinding him to the considerations of the things that will bear on his eternity whereas typically in the temporal people regard what as a blessing but Abraham said son remember that in your lifetime you received your good things I remember this is in Luke when Jesus is giving what may or may not be a parable there's debate on that But the rich man has gone to hell and he sees uh, um, Lazarus across this chasm. And he says to him, send me, Father Abraham, just dip your finger on my tongue because I thirst. But Abraham said, son, remember in your lifetime you received your good things. And likewise, Lazarus, evil things, that is misfortune." But now he is comforted and you are tormented. Gentlemen, for, for the unbeliever, this is as good as it will ever get. You understand? It will never get better. But for the people whose hope is in Jesus Christ, no matter how good it is now, it will pale in comparison to what we have in Jesus. And no matter how bad it is now, when we go before the throne of God, it will all pale. It will be insignificant. Principle five. God continually directs our circumstances so that we will consider eternity and the eternal consequences of our actions. Thus, somebody quoted this yesterday from Ecclesiastes chapter seven. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For that is the end of all men. And the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter. For by the sadness of the countenance, the heart is made better. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of the fools is in the house of mirth. Boy, did I puzzle that with that at first. And then it dawned on me, well, when you go to a funeral, if God is gracious to you, the thing that you will begin to ask is what will happen to me when I die? What becomes of me? Where will I go? And so from a, from a biblical standpoint and an eternal standpoint, how fortunate it is to be able to go to a funeral and to be confronted with those issues rather than party after party where you never think about tomorrow. And that's actually Second Corinthians. I'm sorry. For godly sorrow works repentance to salvation that we won't regret, but the sorrow of the world simply works death. Man, I, you know, this Walt said this, and it took me a long time to digest this. When we die. The only thing about our circumstances that will weigh on us is the missed opportunity to know God. Somebody is confronted by tragedy. Maybe you had a child dying at a young age. Maybe you are struggling with cancer. You don't know whether you'll survive it. Maybe you had a bankruptcy. Maybe you've been abused as a child. Maybe you don't have a father that ever raised you up with any kind of love and support. But, gentlemen, when we die, the only way those circumstances will ever come to our mind is to ask, oh, I had an opportunity to know God there, and I blew it. The people in hell are not going to say, well, why didn't I get you know, why did God cut off my leg, or why was I raped, or why didn't that project work? They're just gonna say, my goodness, there was an opportunity to know God, and I blew it. And we potentially will say the same thing when we stand before the judgment seat. I'm not, I know people say, well i want to get to heaven, I'm gonna ask God this, this. I doubt that. I think we're gonna look back over our lives, over our lives and see the missed opportunities. Number six, life is full of inequities and things that make no sense to us. But in all these things, there's the same key question. Where in this situation is the opportunity to know God? Or to put it differently, how will I answer to God about this situation on judgment day? Slavery is a great evil. It's a great evil and the slave needs to be set free but you know the issue for the slave how can I know God in my present situation (coughs) when I stand before him how will this bear the slave owner has the same question better ask how will I answer to God about this what did I not see in God about this situation Number seven, in terms of our, how our circumstances figure into eternity, the key thing in each person's life is what he or she does with the opportunities God gives us to know him intimately. Will that come in a pleasant way? Like deals that go wonderfully well. A, a, a loving wife, children who adore us, good health. Will, will that give us an opportunity? That is an opportunity to know God. Will we squander it? Or will we become prideful, boastful, beginning to think, look what I've done? Or maybe the things will be very adverse, a business failure, loss of a loved one, disease ostracism in the church because of a stand you've taken where do you know God in that rich and poor alike go to the grave empty handed but with an account full either of the wealth of heaven or the terror of hell quoting from Ecclesiastes chapter 5 As a man comes forth from his mother's womb, naked shall he return to go as he came. And he shall take nothing from his labor which he may carry away in his hand. And this is a severe evil. Just exactly as he came, so shall he go. So what's the use? Every man's work shall be made manifest. For the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. And from Romans 2, but after thy hardness and impenitent heart treasures up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to every man according to his deeds. Keep going. Keep going. Keep going. Gentlemen, keep going. Ah, we did that yesterday. Keep going. Principle number eight. There is nothing we can do for God or give to him except faith and obedience, which themselves are gifts from God. Please don't think that you're going to do this business deal and close this project so that you can give more money to the church, so you can give more money to missions. God does not need your money. He already owns everything. Now, he may, by his grace, give you the opportunity to participate in giving that you may build a reward in heaven. But, gentlemen, that's out of self-interest. We're not doing anything for God on this score. He is enabling us to do. God does not need us. Rather, he wants us. And number nine, too often the things that matter most to us matter very little to God. And the things that matter most to God matter very little to us. And lastly, the things we most admire and aspire to, such as fame, wealth, power, and pleasure, are most often a terrible snare, and the men or women who have them are more to be pitied than admired. So that the conclusion, again, is him saying, to fear God and know his commandments... For this is the whole duty of man. And yet he looks at us and with great earnest tells us, Ed, go out there in that marketplace. Have a ball, Ed. I'm behind you. Go for it, man. Go for it. And just remember, I will bring these things into judgment. And I want you with me. Thank you.